Alright, so, as I was saying, last week I wasn't here, but we had Deb Bedir here as a guest teacher, and I'd be interested in hearing a little bit about how that time went. Did anybody take notes on what Deb shared with you? Now pull out your notes and let me know what was the main idea that Deb was getting across last week. How does she use her time with you? Yeah. Okay, so she focused on Martin Luther's part in the Reformation. Okay, very good. And uh, who's got some notes that can tell me some of the details about Martin Luther's part in the Reformation? Uh huh. Yeah. So, what kind of activities were you involved with? Yeah. We were like a timeline of Martin Luther's life. You were the timeline. Okay. So the, the timeline was kind of spread around and you had to do like a hunt or search to put things in order? Okay, very good. Uh, how many of you are pretty familiar with Martin Luther's story? Seen a movie, read a book, heard some lessons, pretty familiar? Yeah, he's probably the most famous and the most well-known of the reformers. Um, anything else that uh, was part of the activities or part of the learning? Yeah? Uh huh. Yeah. Like the good old days. Yeah. I told her she could do that even though it makes me look bad. <laughs> Where's our candy? Um, yeah, so to have the timeline, what else did she teach? Yeah. We did a workshop on solos. Okay, good. Yeah, we got the five solos up here on the board. And so. What does uh, sola gratia mean? Yeah? Uh, five days. Yeah. And what does the word sola mean? Uh -huh. Alone. Only. So the, the solas are important because they teach that these are the only uh, way. And that you can't add to what God has provided in the gospel. And I'd say there's one key book in the New Testament that really backs up the solos of the Reformation, because both Catholics and Protestants will agree that faith is important. Uh, both Catholics and Protestants will agree that we're saved by grace. Both Catholics and Protestants will agree that the scriptures are the word of God, and that we should glorify God, and, and that we're saved by Christ. But see, what's different here uh, between Catholics and Protestants is having the sola in front of it. Now, if you were talking with the Catholic, and you were letting them know about the Reformation, and why it's important and things like that, uh, they might say, if they've been well instructed in Catholic apologetics, that there's only one place in the New Testament where we have the phrase faith alone. Anybody know where in the New Testament we have the phrase faith alone? It's in the book of James. Let me find it for you. James is famous in the Reformation for being a book that was used against Martin Luther quite a lot. And he, uh, therefore, at one point in his life, didn't like the book of James and questioned whether or not it even belonged in the Bible, although he uh, changed his mind on that. He realized that wasn't the right approach <laughs> to defending Protestant doctrine. But in James chapter 3, it says here, when talking about Abraham's faith, that even the demons believe and shudder. 
And you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Uh, faith apart from works is useless. And he says in verse 24, you see that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So James says we're justified by works and not by faith alone. And yet here, you know, we've got sola fides as a principle of the Reformation, which means we're saved by faith alone. So that would appear to be a contradiction, right? We've talked about apparent contradictions in our class. So the Bible says we're not saved by faith alone, but the Reformers say we are saved by faith alone. What do you do with that, Protestant? <clears throat> and so, I'll let you think about that. Maybe we'll come back to that at the end of the class. But the word sola is the important word, uh, alone. What does it mean that we're looking for Scripture alone? What are some of the authorities that were added to the authority of Scripture that ended up taking away from the authority of Scripture? And you saw that in the William Tyndale story. Uh, the church uh, had kind of replaced Scripture and the doctors of the church and the Pope. Uh, the, their authority had replaced the authority of Scripture. And if they were in conflict with one another, you had to choose. Which authority am I going to go with? And the Catholics went with the Pope, and the Protestants went with Scripture, and that's why sola scriptura is a Protestant principle, because the church divided on that issue of authority. And then you've got faith alone, which we've talked about, and uh, you can talk with me afterwards if I've troubled you on the quote from James there. And uh, grace alone, well, what are the other things that Christians, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, had added to God's grace as a means of salvation? Uh, anybody have an idea on that? Yeah. Good. Yeah, exactly. So one of the, if you want to try to help people understand the differences between being a Protestant and a Catholic, the, the Protestant church is non-sacramental, whereas the Catholic church is sacramental. And that means that Grace flows not just through faith, but that faith, uh, grace comes through the sacraments of the church. And the Mass being probably the, the one that's most repeated and most important in the life of the Catholic. And then you've got Solus Christus, uh, in Christ alone, and for God's glory alone, not for the glory of the church prelates. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Attending is to participate in most cases because you attend in order that you can participate in the uh, service where you do partake of the body. You don't take, they don't serve the cup, I think, in most Catholic masses, but they do serve the bread in the Catholic mass. Right. So the, in the Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper, the priest has the authority to turn the wafer and the cup into the body and blood of Jesus Christ and that authority to represent the sacrifice of Christ to the people then by participating in that representation of the sacrifice of Christ 
you receive grace. And so it's very important for those who are in the sacramental system to be consistently receiving that grace through the sacrifice of the Mass. If I'm explaining it the way the Catholic would, I do my best to, to be fair and explain it accurately. Um, Alright, so great. I'm glad that you guys went over the solos. I'm glad you went over Martin Luther and the timeline. Uh, anything else that you remember from last week that would be important to recall? It's been a whole week. Hard to remember. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what was on the coloring sheet? Okay. Was it the Protestant rose or Luther's rose? Uh, okay. Oh. Okay. The, the stained glass window. Interesting. And what was the purpose of that? Just something to keep your hands busy. Yeah. Uh huh. And yeah, Deb's good at that. She knows that there are kinesthetic learners who do best when their hands are busy doing something. All right, well, we're good. Uh, I'm thankful for Deb coming and uh, being a part of our class last week and for all that she's done for the homeschool community and for my family and many others. Uh, we want to appreciate and admire the work of others. You exhorted the kids to give her a warm welcome, and they did. Good. They were all kind and respectful. Excellent. And did what she asked. Glad to hear that. Yeah, because when you're coming in and it's your only t opportunity to teach a group, you don't know the group and you don't have a feel for it, and so you definitely want to be warm and welcoming and gracious in those situations. All right, uh, get out your uh, return of the revolution. Uh, if you have a folder with you where you're keeping track of everything that I've given you this year, uh, at the beginning of the year, I played for you a song from the Orange County Supertones called Grounded. And since this is Reformation Week with Monday being Reformation Celebration Day. I wanted to also uh, play for you the return of the revolution and talk a little bit about that. Now, if you don't have it with you, uh, you can uh, take one that I've got here. So pass those around while I'm getting set up here. And war before. I haven't been in actual war before, but through the power of imagination, through reading, through being able to be inspired by the experiences of those who have been courageous and brave in battle, that's something that we need among our men and among our young women. And I think it's easy for us to just get complacent, just get lazy, and say, well, other people have fought, other people have worked hard, and and now we just kind of get to relax. So you look at that line there where it says, the fire cooled down ever since that generation. We put down the Bible and picked up the PlayStation. And so how many of you are expert in some video game and not expert in what the scripture has to say? What do you put your time into? It's amazing what a person can accomplish when they have disciplined focus, when they have a desire to become excellent at something and are willing to put in the work. If you are willing to put in the work, there's very little that cannot be accomplished, very little that cannot be done. But it takes time. When you go on YouTube and you see the virtuoso playing the guitar uh, so skillfully in, in front of a large crowd and getting millions of views, well that's because they've had 10,000 hours of practice at home on their instrument until they get to that point where they're able to do that. 
And that's the way it is with being a Christian. Uh, being a Christian is, is not just showing up to church on Sunday morning or having some classes or reading some books. That this is something that takes disciplined training. And you kids, if I can be so bold, you lack wisdom and knowledge. And you need to be seeking wisdom and knowledge and be growing strong like Martin Luther. Like Jonathan Edwards, who was also mentioned in the song. The revolution and the reformation is there in the chorus. The revolution is the reformation. Then he also talks about the great awakening in the next line. The Great Awakening was a movement in America where uh, churches were brought back to a passion, a understanding, a discernment, a level of spirituality that, that they had lost. Alright, so stay with me. I'm sorry about the interruption there. The Great Awakening was led by Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards, he was an extremely disciplined man. And he was someone who worked really hard. What's funny? Right, why don't you two separate each other, okay? Um, Petra, go back a few rows, please. <clears throat> I'm not talking about funny things right now, all right? I want you to go. <clears throat> Get a little space here. Um, that Jonathan Edwards was an extremely disciplined and hardworking man, and that's why he was able to accomplish what he did in his time and in his place. And I encourage you to look into the time of the Great uh, Awakening. And... The authors of this song, they would spend a lot of time reading Jonathan Edwards, reading Martin Luther. Not just reading about them, but reading their writings in order to be inspired to become like them. And we need heroes. We need someone that we can say, this is someone that I'm going to pattern my life after. This is someone that's going to be a role model for me. And so look for those heroes. And then act like them. Be a man like them. That's what we need if we're going to have something to say to the world in our time. The world walks by and we don't have a thing to say. And that's the way that most evangelicals are, young and old. We, we don't know how to fight in the battle and we're getting trounced. And so the compromise in the church is a serious problem and it comes from that lack of discipline and that desire to just be lazy and to enjoy pleasure rather than to be a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul called Timothy to be. The Apostle Paul is a great example. Uh, there's a man who was working hard. There was a man who was uh, willing to die for his cause. There was a man who knew what spiritual battle and what spiritual struggle was. And hopefully you saw that in the William Tyndale story. That William Tyndale was, he's a man just like, just like us. But because of his passion for the word of God, because of his love for God and his love for people, he was willing to take those steps that were dangerous. He was willing to, to do things that were against the law and put his neck on the line. And in fact, he did lay down his life for the cause of the, the word of God in English for his people. And so it's people like that who we look up to and who inspire us to be like Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ he laid down his life for us. And he was a man on a mission in spiritual battle. And that's what we're called to be as Christians. So when we're talking about William Tyndale, when we're talking about the Reformation, yeah, it's, it's easy just to say, well, that's the way it was back then. And not to realize that, that we have a battle to fight today. And that that's why we study these men, because they are training us how to be godly men. 
All right, so take out your answers to the study questions on the story of William Tyndale. And let's talk about that a little bit here in the time that we have. The first, the first question, if God spares my life, blank, what was the completion of that quote? Yep. Um, I will see through that pondering of more about the scriptures than you do. Yeah. Uh, now those are fighting words, right? So the conversation over the dinner table where this was taking place, uh, William Tyndale had a wealthy patron. That's how scholars uh, were able to devote themselves to scholarship as they needed a wealthy patron. And that's the same way it is today, except now the wealthy patron is the, is the government that funds the schools and allows the professors to write their papers and publish their articles and do their research and, and all of that. Well, back in those days, they you know, had a crown and a king and nobles, and they didn't have a republic like we have. And so the nobles were those who would have uh, scholars that they would support to be able to devote their life to scholarship so they're not out in the field uh, feeding their family, but they're in their studies, translating, publishing, learning, teaching. And William Tyndale was a first-rate scholar, and that's why the uh, patron would, would feed him and give him a place to live because he recognized the value of his work. See, you don't deserve food. You don't deserve clothing. The Bible says if you're not willing to work, you don't deserve to eat. And so you need to earn your keep. You need to become a type of person who's doing work that is worth supporting. And if your work isn't worth supporting, then you should feed yourself. And, and there's a lot of scholars whose work is not worth supporting, and they should be kicked out, and they should just be working uh, to do something productive with their hands instead of wasting their time with all of their foolishness in their scholarly circles. But William Tyndale, he was a good scholar, and he was one who deserved support, and there's good men who would support him and even back him up when he was in contentious debate with the authorities in the church, uh, the men who were not feeding the flock of God, but who were feeding themselves, just as it has always been uh, throughout history. So he was challenged by the church authority. Uh, what do you say to the fact that it would be better to have God's laws, uh, it would be better to have the Pope's laws and then God's laws. And that's when he uh, was so bold to say, if God spares my life, I will see that the plowboy knows more about Scripture than you do. And uh, that was very insulting. Uh, it caused the men to get up and leave the banquet. And it put William Tyndale's life in danger. If you're going to speak to authority with, with that kind of uh, courage, openness, bravery, it's going to put your life in danger. And that's exactly how Jesus Christ spoke to the ungodly authorities in his day. And that's why they did not forgive Jesus Christ and why they sought to kill him. Then you see it in Tyndale. And do you have courage to speak the truth to powerful people like John the Baptist, who had his head cut off because he had the courage to tell Herod Antipas that it was illegal, according to God's law, for him to be married to his brother's ex-wife. Uh, so, William Tyndale's courage is shown in that quote. Now, the second question. Why did Tyndale want to work for Tunstall, the Bishop of London? 
Five. Good. All right. So back then there wasn't a free press. You need a license to print. And so if he was working for the Bishop of London, then he would be able to print the Bible in English, which was his, his life passion, his life's desire was to translate and print the Bible. Um, but what objections did Tunstall give for accepting Tyndale's proposal? This is one of the best conversations in the, the video. It really captured well, I think what it would have been like to be in that room and to hear Tyndale and Tunstall talking about this. Yeah? Um, Tunstall didn't want to be like connected with William Tyndale and use his authority. Why? Why? What, was, what, were, what were Tunstall's objections? What was he concerned about? Uh, he said that the people weren't ready for truth, basically. And well, how did, why did he think that? <laughs> that's true, but that's not what he said. Uh, but that he might have thought that under the surface. He thought like the ordinary people couldn't comprehend the scriptures. No. Yeah. Did he give any examples, uh, historical examples, that would show that when people received the word of God, uh, they had problems? <laughs> Okay, good. Yeah, so he quoted scripture, uh, talked about uh, a scriptural idea. So it's interesting to see you know, men who are both Christians and supposed to be serving the church, arguing scripture back and forth with one another, and then that causes you to enter into the argument and say, well, what's right with this argument? What's wrong with this argument? And to try to use your own logic and reasoning and knowledge of scripture. That's why I enjoy things like this, get you into the debate. Yeah? Um, I think That was the previous conversation. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, Lucas, do you have something? Yeah, I don't think it's as much against or like trying to keep people in the dark. Uh huh. I just think it's a little more open to that. Yes. But he wanted to slowly. Right. I don't know how you slowly present. Yes. Right, so he was cautious, and he wanted to kind of take it safe steps. He didn't want to do anything that would cause revolution. Because he pointed out Wycliffe and the Lawlers. And Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation a number of uh, decades before this. And remember that John Wycliffe began to translate the Bible into English. Uh, he was a, a scholar at Oxford, I believe, or Cambridge, probably Oxford. And he had followers then who would, uh, you know, realize that the scripture was teaching things that were completely contrary to what the church was teaching. And so then they caused trouble in the church because they were holding to what scripture taught instead of what the church taught. And so he thought that that was too reckless, that you can't just give the people the Bible and then have all this conflict. He thought that you just kind of have to, to, you know, take whatever steps are allowed that aren't going to cause trouble and just wait. Uh, so he was a very cautious man and didn't want any uh, trouble. And that was part of his job was to make sure that the church was at peace and there wasn't uh, civil unrest. And so that's why Tunstall was afraid of putting the Bible into the hands of the people. But instead, what did Tunstall want? 
he wanted the translation into English that maybe the, the church leaders could use. And then the church leaders could get more enlightened about what scripture says. And then, you know, over time, it'll trickle down to the common people. So he didn't want the common people kind of overthrowing the church. He wanted the church to be more reformed from within uh, and for uh, men like Tyndale to be patient and wait uh, to kind of bring along the church. And then the church can bring along the people. But that wasn't Tyndale's approach. So they were not able to work together. Uh, number three. Why did Tyndale prefer congregation to church in his translation of the Greek word ekklesia? It was a discussion that was going on in the in the video. Yep. Um, to the common people, like the word church was more closely related to like the clergy. Right. Then. Yep. So if you put the word church in there, what people would think of is the bishop, the pope, you know, the hierarchy, uh, the building, and the sacraments, and, and all of that. They weren't thinking of the the, the people the believers, the common people, the congregation. And so that's why Tyndale wanted to translate ecclesia as congregation rather than as church. And I still kind of like that idea. I think church still kind of has official connotations that kind of draw away from what the New Testament is teaching. And I think we should have more of an idea of congregation than like a church organization or a church hierarchy or structure, which is often what people think of, the common people in America. If you say the word church, you're going to think, oh, that's the building, that's the pastor, that's the staff, that's the church. Uh, no, that's not the church. When the church is talking, when ecclesia is in the New Testament, it's the congregation, it's the people. It's not the building and the hierarchy. So, important to keep that in mind. Interesting that he had to think through all this, uh, you know, he didn't have a tra translation of the Bible. He had some of Wycliffe's work, but he was doing a lot of this uh, from scratch and the first to, to translate a lot of parts of the Bible into English. So you have to think through, what is the best English word to, to use here? Pretty, pretty intense work. Number four, to what country did Tyndale travel to print the New Testament in English? Girls, so you're letting all the guys answer all the questions here. Yeah, good, Germany. Uh, why do you think Germany was more open to printing the Bible in English than England? Yeah. Right, so Martin Luther had already uh, translated the Bible into German, and so they already were in part of this movement of getting the Bible into the common language. Also, you know, uh, people in Germany, they might uh, not have any laws against printing in English, uh, and so... It might be safer for them there. So there'd be a, probably a number of reasons why he had to go to a different country to accomplish his mission. Yeah. Well, I also would think that because in Germany, English would not be the only native language right. as it would be in England. Yeah. So it would be like printing a German Bible in England. It wouldn't be the same negative effect that they would see today. Right. And if a policeman you know, sees a, an English book, he doesn't know if it's a Bible or if it's something else. And so there's probably some, some uh, cover that you have there as well. Uh, but can you imagine? Uh, you know, God's given you a mission, and in order to accomplish that mission, you've got to go out of your country, you've got to exile yourself uh, to a foreign country where you don't hardly know anybody, if, if at all. You, know, you don't know the language. Uh, how am I going to survive? You know, how's God going to take care of me? But this was the, the extent to which William Tyndale was willing to go to accomplish the mission that God had given him to get the Bible into people's hands. So may we you know, learn from that 
uh, courage as well. Not just the courage to speak to the authorities, but also the courage to, to go to a different country. And you see that with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul went to all these different countries where he's beaten, where he had all kinds of problems on, in his travels. But he's willing to put his life in danger in order to accomplish the mission that God had given him. All right, uh, number five. Which historical characters did you find most interesting or well portrayed? So pick out one uh, that you could share with the group that you thought was a very interesting character in the show. Henry VIII. Yes, uh, he's one on, on the top of my list also. Why is Henry VIII so interesting? I don't know. He's just loud. Because he's Henry VIII. Yeah, yeah. Well, not all kings are like Henry VIII. He's one of the, the more interesting fellows. Uh, you got something? Yeah, one person that I like the most. <clears throat> Even for uh, how short of a time he was in it. Sir John. Okay, uh, which one was Sir John? Remind Sir me. Sir John was the one that um, Tyndale stayed with in his manor. Oh yeah, at the beginning. Yep. Yeah, so he was willing to put his position in danger to to shield William Tyndale. Um, so yeah, I appreciate brave men like that who have a lot and therefore they have a lot to to lose and they're risking a lot because they have a lot. And the Bible often teaches that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the, the rich man has so much that he doesn't want to lose, that really what he has now has his heart. And his heart is now captive to all of his possessions and all of his honor and his position and prestige. And so it's hard for people to give that up. I uh, think Sir John showed that he was willing to do so. Uh, other characters in the movie who were fascinating. Oh yeah, Sir Thomas More. Oh, uh, I think we're talking about Sir Thomas More. He was the scholar who took up his pen to write against Tyndale. So he was not a clergyman. Uh, he was not a, a bishop or a, a church hierarchy authority. But, but he was a well-renowned scholar who was Catholic in his convictions. And so I like that about the movie. Is they, they showed Sir Thomas More not as a bad guy, but they just showed him as he was. That he was a man of conviction, uh, a man of learning. And his convictions and learning were different from William Tyndale, and so they fought against each other intellectually with the pen, um, but both were doing what they thought was right. They were both doing what they thought was best uh, for, for God's glory. And I appreciate that, uh, that it wasn't a Protestant movie that tries to make non-Protestants look bad in an unhistorical way, but that Sir Thomas More was a, a genuine man of conviction, a genuine man of good conscience. Uh, he, it was wrong, <laughs> in my view, but, you know, he was, he was trying to do what he thought was best. So I, I appreciated that about the movie. Thanks for bringing him up. Yeah. And if we learn anything from the nooses, intention matters. Yes, right. <laughs> Intentions do matter. Um, so yeah, I think God will take all that to, into account in his judgment. But I, I pray for men like Sir Thomas More that uh, they will come to a knowledge of the truth, because we have many people like that in false Christian churches today who don't understand the gospel, they don't understand the scriptures despite their great learning, and they, they need what William Tyndale has, or had, and what we have. Um, a lot of other interesting characters, but I think we hit a lot of the good ones. Doesn't mean they're insincere, doesn't mean they're selfish. Right. So it's not like they're like the enemy that we're like we're wondering why 
<laughs> right. Yeah, that's good. So asking good questions, being uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. One of the things that you really want to develop is you want to get to the point in your convictions where you know what you believe and you know why you believe it. And so you're not always threatened by other people's convictions and beliefs. Uh, a lot of times we, we treat other people poorly when they disagree with us because we're not secure in our own convictions and we feel threatened by our convictions being challenged or questioned or disagreed with. Um, I'm, I've gotten to the point where I'm largely secure in my convictions. I've thought through the issues, I've studied through the issues, so I don't feel um, thrown off balance when somebody disagrees with me or points out an argument that goes against my position, like the sola uh, by faith alone. If somebody comes to me and says, well, Timothy, there's one place in the Bible where it says faith alone. It says we're not justified by faith alone. Uh, I've, I've thought through that, I've worked through that, and so I'm not defensive uh, when somebody comes at me with an argument, but instead I'm secure enough to be able to talk through and reason with them and not take it personal. Uh, and a lot of times it's our fear that, oh no, maybe I'm wrong and, and maybe you know I, I'm not right that causes us to respond and we have to be careful we're not responding out of fear. All right, um, good points. Now, number six, what were the arguments against having the Bible in the language of the common people that were used by the Catholic Church throughout the William Tyndale movie? Beginning, middle, and you had these constant good uh, historical, I mean, well-represented arguments that the church would have used against having the language, the, the Bible in the language of the common people. What were some of those arguments? We've touched on this a little bit. Yeah. They just said you wouldn't be able to, like, Right. Yeah, they wouldn't be able to understand it. That's why God gave teachers in the church, was to, to guide people into the knowledge of the scriptures. Uh, is there some truth in that? Does God provide teachers in the church to help people understand the scriptures? Yes, he does. Um, but do those teachers have to be uh, you know, appointed by some hierarchical authority uh, in order to be qualified to teach? No, it's the Holy Spirit who distributes the gift of teaching among the body. And it's not the hierarchy that determines who is the authoritative teacher. Um, and so there's a, there's a, a wonderful democracy uh, about the church that even though there is an authority structure, uh, it's, it's very uh, from the ground up, from the, the people up, rather than from the top down. Yeah, did you have an argument? Okay, um, sorry about that. <laughs> I was elaborating. Um, so they were worried about misunderstandings. They were worried about civil unrest. Um, and of course, those, were, those worries of civil unrest were shown to be valid concerns. Because what you see in Germany with uh, the, the Reformation there is that the Reformation did lead to what is known as the Peasants' Revolt. You guys know about the Peasants' Revolt? Anybody can explain that to me? All right, well, that might be something you want to look up. Uh, we don't have time to go into it right now. In fact, I'm probably already spending too much time on this, but it is fascinating stuff. Uh, what were the charges against Tyndale at his trial? What's that? Okay, uh, give me the first one. Okay, uh, yeah, very good. What was the, what was the second charge? 
Go ahead. Yep. Uh, belief saves us without further cause. Okay, faith, faith saves us. Uh, so grace alone, faith alone. Was that the first two that we've got? Uh, what were some of the other charges? Okay, heresy and his logic and his uh, presentation of divinity, which is the truth about God. Uh, any specifics about his heresy? They called him a heretic uh, a lot, but uh, what were the specifics of his heresy aside from faith alone and grace alone? Anybody got anything else? Yeah, Lucas? Okay. As well as us praying to God. Okay. So, I don't remember that part, but I'm glad you're bringing that up. That was a, an element in the Reformation, was what, a, what is the place of the saints, those who have been canonized by the church, and uh, the, the Virgin Mary, as far as mediators in prayer. Uh, is there one mediator, Solus Christus? Are there many mediators that we pray to who go to the Father on our behalf? Okay, good. So, Sola Scriptura uh, would be that one. So, it's a lot of the points of the Reformation, right? The Sola Scriptura, the Sola Fide, Solus Christus. Uh, so, that might be where some of these uh, points came from in trials like this. Uh, how did Tyndale answer the charge, number eight, that he believed that faith alone saves? What do you have written down for number eight? Somebody that hasn't answered yet? You got your paper in front of you. Number eight. All right, go ahead. By grace you are saved through faith. Okay, so he, he made it clear that he believed that he was saved by grace through faith. Anybody have any of his arguments that he used in court to support that? Um, he said that the fruit cannot determine whether the tree is good or bad. Good. Right, so the fruit in this case is corresponds to good works. And so the Catholic Church taught that you are, are justified, you have saving grace by good works that go along with faith, and it's not faith alone. But Tyndale said the, the fruit just demonstrates what is the nature of the tree. You're not saved by the good works, you're saved by the faith, which makes you bear good fruit. And the fruit then would be an indication. So... Where we started off there in James, where James says you're saved by works and not by faith alone. Well, William Tyndale is explaining that here. He's agreeing the fact that, well, when you're saved by faith, you become a good tree, that you're born again, you have Christ planted in your heart, you receive the Holy Spirit, and then Christ working in you produces the good works through faith. And so, yeah, if you just say, well, I have faith, but there's no good works to demonstrate that saving faith, well then, that's an empty profession of faith. And I'll often say that we're not saved by a profession of faith, we're saved by faith. And there's a difference between professing something and actually being able to do it. I can tell you that I can play uh, Bach on my guitar, uh, but then if you put a guitar in my hand and say, okay, Timothy, play it, I, I'd be shown to be an empty professor. That I profess to be able to do something that I, I don't actually do. And so in the same way, there's a lot of Christians who profess faith in Christ, but do they actually have faith in Christ? We can tell that by looking at their life. 
uh, do they believe what Christ says, will be shown in how they live their life. If you believe that Christ says there's a, a final judgment, there's a resurrection of the dead, if you believe what Christ has to say about what is important, what is valuable in life, that's going to transform the way you live your life. But if you just say you believe in Christ, but you don't actually, then that will be demonstrated in your life. So very important to understand the relationship of faith and works. And I thought William Tyndale did a great job of explaining that uh, as portrayed in the movie. Well, and then finally, number nine, what was Tyndale's final prayer before he died? Yep. Yes. And how was that prayer answered? Uh, how did God open the eyes of the king of England? The king instituted Bibles and all the scriptures. Yeah. Right. And so after Tyndale's death, the uh, translation of the Bible that was based on his work was presented to the king. And his advisors, his counselors, told him that it was without error, uh, that it was a good translation. And so he said, well, if it's without error, then let it be published among the people. And so interestingly, that they killed him for doing it. And then shortly after his death, they went ahead and did it anyway. Um, yeah. I think they were just trying to inflate the value of that Bible. Like every artist, after right. they died, they paid things worth more money. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So God allowed William Tyndale to give his life for his cause, and then God answered Tyndale's prayer to accomplish what he devoted his life to and what he gave his life for. So, very inspiring story. Uh, well done with the writing in the movie, and that's what I said is the most important part of any movie is the writing. You can spend a billion dollars to produce a Rings of Power television show, but if you don't hire good writers, oops, you, you wasted a billion dollars. <laughs> All right. Now, the time that we have left, um, I want to go over your uh, assignment for the upcoming week. Now, you've got your speech with you, your informative speech, your persuasive speech, or your illustrated oratory. Yep. Huh? Okay. Yeah, I think I got that in the email. Um, so your question was, uh, does a informative speech need a thesis in the same way that a persuasive speech yeah, needs a thesis? Or if it does need one, like, how would you use it? Well, uh, if you're giving an informative speech, you say, well, my purpose today is to give you an accurate knowledge of this or that and to just spell out exactly what it is that you want people to understand from your speech in one sentence. Um, so after you've studied it, thought about it, written about it, you should be able to write in one sentence, this is the main idea. Kind of like I started off today saying, well, what was the, the main thing that Deb taught on last week? And, you know, the life of Martin Luther and his place in the Reformation or something like that. So your thesis statement is just yeah, it captures the whole uh, big idea in one hopefully concise sentence. Try to be brief. Um, and then you can elaborate on that brevity throughout the rest of the speech. All right, let me hand out to you uh, what will be the evaluation form for your speeches coming up.
Now, this is a persuasive speech evaluation form. I might tweak it a little bit for the illustrated oratory and for the informative speech. The informative speech and the persuasive speech are very similar in how they will be scored. I might add a category for the illustrated oratory on the quality of your illustrations. But as you get this paper, what you're going to notice is that a lot of points on your speech are related to your organization. And this is something that those who were part of my class last year will recognize that I, I'm really trying to teach you here, especially at the beginning in our first speech, that organization is something that you must be careful to do exactly as I, as I instruct you. That you must have a introduction that has an attention grabber and a thesis statement. And here, I'm not judging you on the quality of your attention grabber, like was it really grabbing attention. I'm just judging you on, is there an attention grabber? Even if it's a poor attempt, even if your attention grabber kind of falls flat and it's boring, uh, if you've at least tried and I can identify, well, that was meant to be the attention grabber, even though everyone was bored. Uh, yes. <laughs> then you get the points for the organization, all right? Because this first section is just about organization. And you can get 60 points just by having your attention grabber be obvious, your thesis statement being obvious, having your main points and your transitions being obvious and your conclusion, having a review of the main points, a review of the thesis, and the closing uh, challenge or zinger. And so if you have any questions about what I mean by attention grabber, thesis statement, main points, transitions, review, or the final challenge or zinger, a zinger is what ties you back into your attention grabber. So it brings you full circle and whatever you used at the beginning to grab attention with is what you use at the end to put the final punctuation on your speech. And that's why your attention grabber needs to be related to the thesis statement. Notice that on there? Your attention grabber, whether it's highly effective or highly imaginative, is not, is not as important as does it relate to the thesis statement. So if you've got a great attention grabber, but it has nothing to do with your thesis statement and you don't make it clear how it relates to your thesis statement, you don't get the points. Uh, your, your, your attention grabber can't just be a funny joke that has nothing to do with the rest of your presentation. Okay? It's got to connect logically. It's got to connect thematically in some way. And so your thesis statement needs to be clearly recognizable. If I'm listening to your speech and you say a lot of things in the introduction, and I'm like, well, this might have been the thesis statement, or there's like three or four sentences here that kind of work together to be a thesis statement, that doesn't count. You got one sentence that's clear, that's concise, that says, this is what it's all about. You got to make that clear. Um, so practice uh, with your parents or a friend, and see, you know, can you identify my thesis statement when I give my speech? And if they can't, then you're not clear enough. And you're not going to get the full points for organization. Um, so you notice here you've got a five to seven minute speech. You should spend one or two minutes on the intro, three to five in the body, and one to two in the conclusion. Um, the main points need to be able to be written down. If I'm listening to your speech and I can't write down what your main points are, you're going to lose a lot of points on organization. And so, just like I told you, when you're giving a speech, you start off saying, this is what I'm going to tell you. Here's my thesis, here's my main points, 
here's main point number one, main point number two, main point number three, and then when you get to the conclusion, you're saying, this is what I told you, and these were my main points that lead to this thesis. So you gotta organize it in that way. If you're brilliant and creative and persuasive, but you don't follow this organization, you're gonna lose a lot of points and you won't pass without these 60 points, right? So everybody should be able to get these 60 points. You, you don't have to be a literary genius or an oratorical genius to get these 60 points. Just, just do what I tell you to do. You can get those 60 points. Any questions about that? All right, good. And then secondly, you've got a section on accuracy and content. Notice it's only 12 points. Uh, it is important. I, I, I do want you to be accurate. I do want you to have good content, but that's not what we're focusing on right now. We're just focusing on the organization, and that's why accuracy and content is a small part of the grade. You see what it says there? Did the speaker communicate a good understanding of the subject? Was the presentation accurate? Um, so have you well researched it? Is your information good? Number three, that is on your communication, your style. And that has to do with everything else besides your organization and your content. Notice I've got four different categories here. The last one uh, is just the time limit. I suppose that could be in a separate category. That's not really in communication. Uh, but I just threw that one on there because I wanted that as part of the grade somewhere that you're in between that five to seven minutes. I think your page says six to eight. I'm gonna change that to five to seven. Um, I'll make a note of that right now. Um, so if you go over a minute, you lose a point. If you go under a minute, you lose a point. If your speech is, you know, 30 seconds long, you don't get any points. And if your speech is 20 minutes long, you don't get any points. Uh, so if you're just a minute off, it's not going to affect your grade that much. That's what I'm saying. Uh, question? Wait, so could you please have attention because <laughs> if that's the case, if I intended to go for a full second of speech, and I didn't... Intentions are not the only matter. thing. Are not the only thing that matters. Thank you for So if you've got a nine-minute speech, it's not the end of the world, you're going to lose two points. Okay? Um, now, physical communication and gestures, that's the point right above it. Uh, that's that's your, your hands. You, you know, you're not talking like this. Um, the whole time, but you're, you're got some good gestures in there. And so I'm not going to judge you real hard on your physical gestures and communication, eye contact, that type of thing. I'm going to be generous. It's your first speech in this class. Some of you have a lot of uh, practice already in public speaking, some of you less so. And so uh, there's seven points that are available there. Verbal communication is how, if you're talking uh, mumbling, if you're talking in a way that people can't hear what you're saying, if you're just talking monotone all the way through your presentation, um, <laughs> you know, you might lose some points if you don't uh, follow these <coughs> exhortations, these examples of good verbal communication. Proper grammar, clear pronunciation, varied speaking patterns and volume, good range and proper use of vocabulary. If you're using words wrong, you might uh, lose some on verbal communication. So don't try to throw in a word that you don't know what it means and make sure that you are speaking clearly. Then the, the top category there, the life, vitality, the passion, 
it's more interesting to watch somebody who's got some life and so uh, try to try to bring some energy to your speech but again those are not huge uh, those are small things and I'll be generous but the main thing I want to emphasize is get the organization right all right so I've done this before I've taught speech classes before I've tried with all my might to, to teach organization and to emphasize how important it is and yet I, I uh, come back and when I'm giving the first grades back to my class it's like where was the attention grabber uh, where was your thesis statement I couldn't make out what your main points were um, the transitions were missing uh, you didn't restate your main points in your conclusion I didn't hear your thesis again in your conclusion over and over again the, the organization fails so surprise me uh, be my first class that gets the organization right and I can give full points to everybody on organization all right in the time that we have left I want to teach you a little bit about proofreading um, so I, I printed out I didn't get stapled but there's two pages here so I'm going to pass it around and make sure you get both pages these are proofreading symbols notations Copy editing and proofreading symbols. Raise your hand if you've seen these before. Some of you have. Now, normally when you're proofreading a paper, what color ink do you use? Red. Right. Um, I didn't print these out in color, so it doesn't have them in red. But imagine as you're looking at it that all of the symbols are in red ink and all the examples besides what is typed out is written in red ink um, we probably won't have time to do it in class together today and so what I'm gonna ask you to do is I'm gonna ask you to exchange papers with someone in the class you're gonna give your paper to a friend and you're going to proofread each other's papers this week as part of your assignment um, I'd like you to get this well yeah I don't know. I was going to do it in class, so I'm trying to figure out how it's all going to work out. But this might put us back a little bit as far as our speech writing and uh, speeches go. Yeah. What if you already did that with a friend's paper? I'll do it again. Okay. Yeah. Find another friend. Um, <laughs> some of us only have one friend. Um, so. <laughs> If you got a word that you want taken out, it's that symbol where you do a, a, I don't know what you call it, but you guys see it there, the deletion symbol. And you just do that over the word. And I like, I like this handout because it shows you the symbol by itself, tells you the meaning, and then gives you the example. And some of this is more like structure as far as you know, indentation or spacing and things like that. And hopefully you won't have to make a lot of those types of marks. Um, but I was looking through here and I was like, where does it tell you when a spelling is wrong? Um, how do you correct spelling 
when you're correcting someone's uh, paper, we're proofreading someone's paper, what it, what's the notation for that? Anybody know? Seem like the most obvious, most used one. I would think so. Uh, I'd say you, you cross out the word that's wrong, you write the word above it, and if uh, you want to be especially clear, um, you could uh, write SP uh, for spelling uh, in the margin. If there's not enough room to write the word above it, cross it out and write it in the margin. Uh, I think that'd be a good way to indicate a misspelled word. Now, the, the good thing about giving a speech is, is that spelling doesn't matter that much because we're not going to be reading it. We're going to be listening to it. And so as long as you pronounce it correctly, uh, misspelling will not show up in a speech. Now, uh, if you've got two words there, like in the second example, uh, that are separated but are supposed to be one word within, the tolerances are within the range. Uh, so you can understand how somebody could get confused on within and think there was two words, but that's actually one word. So you put those little uh, sideways parentheses around it to show that it's supposed to be brought together, closed up. Uh, the insert symbol. This one. That's why it's good to double space your paper so that there's room for a copy editor or a proofreader to make these notations. And so if something needs to be inserted, they can put the insert symbol and then either write above or below the word that is supposed to be inserted wherever there's room. On your example, it shows it written above, but I think it could also be down below if it needed to be. But I, I think their example is probably best. So write it above whatever, where it needs to be inserted. Um, the pound symbol is to add a space. Now that everyone has cell phones, everyone knows what the pound symbol is. <laughs> um, so, you put a little line, if you can't fit the pound symbol in there, but just a little line, the pound symbol up above the line. So I want you to take the proofreading sheet home I want you to study it, and then I want you to use it in proofreading one of your classmates' papers. Now, you'll notice the last page has 10 rules of proofreading. Everybody turn to the last page and see the 10 rules of proofreading. Number one, never proofread your own copy. That's why you're giving it to a friend uh, to proofread. Now, it doesn't mean you're not supposed to proofread your own work. It just means you're not supposed to be the only one who's proofreading your work. Uh, if you think you're so good at writing that you can proofread your own work without needing anyone else's help, well, then you are overconfident. And all of us have things that we make mistakes on and we need other eyes on to be able to proofread. Now, none of you are professional proofreaders. And so I don't expect you to be perfect on this, but I expect you to do your best, and I expect you to learn from this to become a better proofreader. Um, I've got uh, Adam Johnson as a friend, you know, and he was here uh, teaching, and he's an author. And so as an author, he's been given assignments to proofread other people's published works. And it takes months. It takes all kinds of time to, to proofread uh, a book-length uh, subject that's going to be published. And so 
the publishers will hire people like Adam and other authors to spend months proofreading other people's books so that they come out perfect, uh, or as perfect as we can. And so I don't expect you to be that level, I don't expect you to be perfect, but I, I want you to be growing towards that goal of being the best proofreader that you can be. Yeah. Should we also make recommendations in papers too? Like if they well, use the word, should we like recommend a stronger word or something? You're not the editor, uh, you're the proofreader. Uh, an editor is somebody who makes those types of suggestions. He says, well, the argument here is weak, or I think this part could be taken out, or this is redundant over here. I'm not giving you the assignment to be the editor uh, this week. I'm just giving you the assignment of being the proofreader. Now, maybe uh, we'll do that at some point uh, later in the year. We'll edit one another's papers. But th th this time, just focus on the proofreading. Uh, number, number two, well, I don't have time. We're out of time, so... Just read through the 10 rules of proofreading and then also study the symbols before you do the proofreading. You should, don't, don't start proofreading and then like, oh, what's the symbol for this and, and look it up and see if it's there. Now study the symbols first so that you kind of get an idea of what you're looking for so that when you do read through the paper, you've already got kind of an idea of what kinds of errors you're going to be looking for and you'll be more likely to spot those and be helpful. All right, any questions about the proofreading? Yeah? Is number eight actually going to apply to us? Like, do you want us to take like a lot of time, like over a month? No. Uh, that, that would be the type of thing that you'd be doing if you were a professional copy editor or proofreader. Um, you've got one week uh, to, to get this assignment done, not a month. Uh, take short breaks so you can concentrate more clearly. Uh, your paper is not that long, uh, so you won't need that many breaks. Uh, if you were you know, editing a book, you wouldn't want to try to do it all in one sitting. You'd want to take some breaks, but hopefully you won't need too many breaks with 750 words. You should be able to handle that in one or two sittings. I thought, you know, reading the pages out of order or reading the copy backwards to catch spelling errors, those were interesting suggestions. All right. Uh, so, yeah, that'll be the, the bulk of your assignment this week. Uh, I was hoping to get that done in class. Unfortunately, I didn't get done in class, so we're going to be pushing our speeches back a week uh, from what I'd originally planned. So probably in two weeks, uh, we'll have our first speeches in class. And since we have a large group and each speech is five to seven minutes, it will take us three weeks to get through the speeches. I'll be assigning the order of speeches at random, so uh, you have to be ready the first week. Um, that way we're being fair to everyone. Yeah? Uh, so next week, you're going to tell us how to put our paper into Right. Cards. Yeah. Yeah, that was what also what I was hoping to get to today. Uh, but we'll, we'll do that next week. I spent too much time on the Reformation in Tyndale. That's fine. It was good stuff, though. It was good talk. Yeah. All right. You're dismissed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.